Hey there, dear listeners, and welcome to the podcast Bound in Pale Leather, a podcast about the chronicles of the Kenserath. I'm Gabe. And I'm Catherine. All gates and hands be open to you. This week, we're reading Chapter 7 of Dark of the Moon, A Rage of Rathorns. Our trigger warnings today relate to gore, murder, and the death of a parent. Do you want to do that summary, Mom? I do want to do this summary. <laughs> this week, while Mark, Jame, and Joran outrun Bordas's black band through the anarchies, Jame makes a friend and starts a blood feud. So it's a regular day for Jame. She's doing such a good job. She is doing such a good job. She's a train wreck of a human being. <laughs> but we love her so much. I like the opening of this chapter because it actually opens with the black band, like from the perspective of Bordas. Mm-hmm. And it it provides a very different picture of the anarchies than the like respectfully wary one that Mark and Jame have kind of taken thus far. Because from this, like, two and a half page section, it is pretty clear that the Anarchies are just out to fucking get these guys. They really are. (laughs) I did the math to look at how many people they started with versus how many people they end up with. And they start with 37-ish people, plus the Grindarks that they went into the Anarchies with, Plus the changer. So almost 40 people. And by the end of like night one, they're down to 14. (laughs) What? Less than a day. Not even 24 hours later. Actually, after the guy with the puffball hand runs off, they have 13 people plus Bordis and the changer and the Grindark. So a total (laughs) of 16 people. Not for long. And I just like... It's just, it's wild. Because, like, the thing is, you know, Mark and Jame have really taken a good policy of uh, touch nothing, (laughs) taste nothing, (laughs) harm nothing, and maybe we live. Yeah. Whereas the black band is like, eat that fucking mushroom, (laughs) cut down those trees, sleep on that hillside, do whatever, light a fire, fuck yeah. Like, kill some birds, eat the birds, don't worry about it. And the Anarchies takes its, like, blood price real fucking fast. Yeah. And what's interesting about this is, looking at it in this way, this just kind of seems... It's almost like accidental. And the anarchies don't become this force of sentience and awareness until we get the interchange later on between the anarchies and Jame. Yeah. I really love the kind of haphazard Keystone Cop kind of, you know, these guys are just tripping on their own feet. It's like a cartoon almost. And I'm so glad you did that math because I'd always been kind of curious how quickly their numbers decrease. Yeah, they they have between 31 and 37 because the number of men who are too injured to enter the anarchies is left vague. It's just mm-hmm. several. Mm-hmm. So I figure it's between two and six. Mm-hmm. And that's because when they get stuck at the circle of step back stones, they actually manage to maim and kill some of their own guys. <laughs> so Bordas is not like the pinnacle of successful leadership in this moment, but whatever. And then they have the four Grindarks, the one that is being used as a tracker, and the ones that attacked 
Jame, and Mark, mm-hmm. plus the immu cha- the immu faced changer, mm-hmm. and so that's between thirty one and thirty seven bandits plus five additional people plus Bordis. Wow. So somewhere between 37 and 43 people, I believe. Wow. That math worked out, right? Yeah. Yeah, Nailed it. Yeah. And they go from that to 13 people in 24 hours. Wow. 13 people plus the three that are Bordis, the Changer, and the Grindark. Wow. And a brief list of ways they die. (laughs) A guy grabs a giant puffball mushroom, which tries to eat him stings him, and then drives him insane. (laughs) Some dudes who ate some birds and then lay down on a hill and dreamed about munching and then didn't wake up. Four guys who are just fucking gone, like, just disappeared. This is a lot of people. Yep. (laughs) They lose maybe 25 people in one day not not all of them to death or dismemberment six people just point blank refuse to enter the anarchies at all because they're hill folk and don't don't cotton to that but yeah it's a rough it's a rough couple pages incidentally it is beautiful world building and i do recommend it as like a chunk of world building especially the puffball mushroom <laughs> which i think really encapsulates what is so horrifying about the anarchies even more than the hill? Because <laughs> the hill is deeply upsetting, but the mushroom is like, it's upsetting because it looks like something that should be edible. Yeah. And then it eats you. <laughs> it inverts the mushroom cap around the guy's hand and they cut the mushroom off of his hand and discover that his hand is covered with puncture marks as if the mushroom grew teeth. I find the transient nature and how the anarchies shifts reality so fascinating. And I'm so glad I don't live there. In the anarchies, <laughs> mushroom eat you. <laughs> but so they have a nice little adventure in the anarchies. Hmm? And we learn that the reason the bandits are not going to like say fuck this and leave which i i think would have been a very legitimate response yeah um is because the the previous people who have attempted that have suffered a unstated but presumably horrifying fate at the hands of the changer yeah which given the fact that we just recently saw that a changer is theoretically strong enough to rip someone in half vertically like the difficult way to rip someone in half like vertically mm-hmm. with Tori's adventure <laughs> in the fire timber hall there is a lot of possibilities for what the changer did to those guys yep none of them are good and they're also vampiric and yeah although i don't think we ever established if that's all changers or just the one changer that's true changers are they need to they need to taste blood to assume the appearance of a specific person exactly or as mm-hmm. close as they can manage but like I don't think we ever see any other changers actually need to drink blood to replenish themselves. Yeah. Because I think that one changer might be a Shanir thing, not a changer thing. Well, and that's true. And as we, this is a little bit of a spoiler, but we see a lot of different changers and each changer responds and reacts differently. Yeah. Like, because specifically the reason I'm thinking that it's not a changer thing is because Kural never tries to drink blood. 
Mm-hmm. Even when he has, like, Jame relatively at his mercy, mm-hmm. with that scene of him, like, melting down her arms, which is just still really bad. A, admittedly, he's trying to capture Jame, not kill her. Yeah. But it's never implied that, like, he requires blood to restore his injuries or, like, stabilize his form or anything like that. Mm-hmm. So I'm inclined to think that the changer in Tentir is a blood drinker not because he's a changer but because he's so chenier he can't eat any other food yeah which is a phenomenon that james has already talked about to dally Mm -hmm. and we do see it more later which is in and of itself such an interesting perspective that changers in and of themselves are not a species but actually a mutation of the whoever the changer happens to be. I mean, to some extent, they're like vampires in that, like, in a lot of vampire media, vampires are not a separate species. They're not able to, like, procreate normally. Mm -hmm. They are humans plus some other shit. Anyway, I think it's cool. And that's that's my speculation about changers. (laughs) Thank you very much for reining us in because... I really was tempted to go down that rabbit hole and we're not going to. Our last episode took me three weeks to edit. Yes. I have a new laptop now, but we're not doing that again. (laughs) There was so much heraldry. There was so much heraldry. There's no heraldry in this chapter. Anyway. Yeah, and there's also no artist. (laughs) Moving right along. (laughs) So then we get a cut back to Jame and Mark and Joran Sleeping in their circle of stones, which is just such a great idea. Admittedly, it did keep them from being eaten by a hill. So, you know, I respect that. I do like that we have this glimpse into what was happening with the brigands to get a a full example, a full experience of what was happening with these dudes. Because I don't care as much about the brigands and Bordas's black band. But if I were to see Jame or Mark reaching for a mushroom, I would fly off the handle. And then if they were going to lie down on a on a hill, I'd be going bananas. So I yeah. I love the way that the story is story progresses because we were nervous about Jame and Mark lying down in this circle of stones. And now we know I'm that I'm still not willing to say that this was a good idea per well, se. Well, we were nervous about them sleeping in this circle of stones. And now at the beginning of this chapter, our nervousness is actually proven to be correct. We had reason yeah. to be nervous about it. And so when James wakes up feeling uneasy, the reader is like, wake up! <laughs> yeah, and like, the thing that works particularly well is James wakes up, Mark and Joran are in Dwar sleep. Like, they're really out. Dwar sleep for Kensir is uh, bordering on comatose. Mm-hmm. They're they're completely vulnerable. And at first she doesn't notice it, and she just feels kind of vaguely uneasy, and she gets up and she goes to, like, get a drink because she's thirsty. So she finds a, a stream, and the... F- I'm gonna jump in. I'm gonna jump in because there's one point... I'm so sorry to interrupt, but there's one point no, that I it. really, really want to hit. Yeah. It's her reflection about how safe she feels with Mark. 
And yeah, I wanted to talk about that too. Yeah. No, please go ahead. Okay. Please go ahead. <laughs> and the thing that I love so much about this inclusion at this point, when we as the reader are really kind of surrounded by the experience of danger within the anarchies, is James' reflection on how Mark has this innate quality that shields him from evil. And I was thinking about this when I was rereading this chapter specifically about what you were saying in how the Kendar and the Highborn were, in the most ideal sense, really kind of designed, for lack of a better term, to really kind of work together and have this truly symbiotic and healing experience together. And yeah. I loved that inclusion. There's the ice yeah, cream that's... truck. <laughs> I, I also wanted to talk, like, I wanted to mention that too, because it is, like, that's really what the Kendar are sort of for. Mm -hmm. You know, it, it's changed a lot with the Highborn freaking out about the Shanir, but, like, the Shanir are intended to be the big guns yeah. against Perimal Darkling, and the Kendar are intended to, they're the bulwark, for lack of a better word. Yeah. They're intended to be, like, solid and stable and keeping things functional while the highborn go off in dramatic fits of Shanir brilliance. <laughs> you, had, you had described them that the highborn are really just there to look pretty and do magic. Yeah, I stand by that. <laughs> I'm right. I love this inclusion of the purest sense of this relationship between Highborn and Kendar. I'm so glad to have converted you to this. There's an innocence to this where Jame is able to truly be more herself and more comfortable with herself in the protective shadow of this 80-year-old walking tower of a Kendar. Yeah. I also think it's really sweet because I think Jame is someone who has very rarely known the feeling of safety. And yeah. like, this is, if it was anyone else, I would associate this feeling with like a kid after a nightmare mm -hmm. going to their parents. But like, I think we're all pretty clear on the fact that Ganth was probably a bad candidate for yeah. that. <laughs> so like, I think that, I think it's interesting because I assume the closest thing Jame has to a comparison point for this is Tori. Yeah. Yeah, and that is, that's freighted. Yeah, so. that is a, um, and I just, I think it's interesting, and I, I, I always love these little moments between Jame and Mark where, like, we get to see that underneath all the chaos of Jame worrying constantly about, like, telling him that she's highborn and everything, mm -hmm. like, they just really sincerely enjoy each other's company. Yeah. And it's really endearing, and I'm really charmed by it, and I, that's all I have to say because we're moving at a better pace this episode. Yes, I just we are. said that. I really, really appreciate you, your willingness to let me jump in there again. So yeah, absolutely. Now, You're from... always welcome to interrupt me. You know me. I'll talk until I turn blue. I know. I know. It's just, I have been really curious about what you're going to say about James wandered down to the stream. So proceed. It is a moment of lack of genre savviness that astounds me, even despite <laughs> all of her other lack of genre savviness. <laughs> But so Jame wanders down to the uh, stream, and she's like, it's fine, this is a great idea, I found a stream, I'm gonna get some water, great idea. And then of course, because the anarchies are like, they're- Wow, that ice cream truck <laughs> is just gonna live outside our apartment, huh? <laughs> That's fine. Sorry, what was I saying? The anarchies, like, with Jame and Mark, there's no real malice- 
It's just the same sort of stone cold, you don't belong here and there's nothing you can do to make yourself belong here sort of thing of like being on the open ocean. Yeah. Or like being in a winter storm on a mountain. Yeah. Like the the undertow doesn't care about you. Mm-hmm. The wind doesn't give a shit. It's yep. not mad that you're there. It just doesn't care and you're not gonna stop it from doing what it's doing. Yeah. And the anarchies have very much that kind of energy in this scene where like Jane gets she falls into the stream because the ground just falls out from underneath her. And there are these thorn bushes overhead with like inch long thorns. And the way that the bush looks is each branch ends with a blind head like a snake. And it has an open mouth that has thorns rather than fangs. And they like close in over the water and like start striking at James so that she can't get out. Yeah. And the more she shouts for Mark, the more she realizes that he's in Dwar sleep. He mm-hmm. can't hear her. Yeah. And it's this very implacable feeling of it's the anarchies aren't trying to kill her on any sort of grievance. Mm-hmm. They're just she's somewhere she really shouldn't be. Yeah. And like, I like the implication that the anarchies will do this to anyone, more so if you actually do something wrong. But it does feel much more acute because she's Kensier. Mm-hmm. And I just, it's its a really terrifying little passage that she finally manages to get out of by, like, she feeds the um, emu blood from her, like, thorn-stabbed hands and manages to, like, chase everything off by claiming to have the Earthwife's favor. Yeah. Which is an interesting, true lie. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Because it's not that she's not telling the truth. She does have the favor of the Earthwife. It's just that the Earthwife didn't give it to her. Mm-hmm. But so, incidentally, I would love to have one of these, like, snake briars <laughs> for my own of course you would of course they just sound cool as hell (laughs) i just they sound really cool (laughs) (laughs) anyway i was just insulting jame for lack of genre savviness i'm not saying i would live any longer but uh. well there there are a couple of points in in this particular scene that i find really really fascinating and a couple of those things are this that there is a sense within this implacability that resonates very strongly to the first chapter of Godstock when Jame references that she's a mouse in an earthquake. The earthquake yep. doesn't care about the mouse. It doesn't have any particular sense one way or the other. But there's this addition when a gray bird lands on a branch right next to Jame and the snakehead bush. And the bird yeah. is one of those one of those birds that has no eyes on its head, but has eyes on its wings. Also really like these, by the way. Yeah, these, yeah. And the bird lands and then spreads its wings so that it can watch Jame be drowned by a bush. 
And Jaime remembers Imolai, the the Arankin, who had said that the Anarchies hated anything with a darkling taint. And so yeah. I love this parallel between Jaime in the water underneath the underneath the bush, like almost being drowned by this bush. It's an immune system. It's, it is. It is. It's an immune That's system. That's what it is. It's not the... It, there's no malice. It's an immune system. <laughs> yes, that's really beautiful. <laughs> that's perfect. Especially right on the heels of her waking up and her reminiscence of Mark and her reflections on Mark. She reflects even that Mark's innate quality against evil was so strong and so deep that even the Earthwife recognizes it. And the yeah. Earthwife had called him a good boy. <laughs> And I love that this whole setup of this trial of Jane and her solution to facing the possibility of being drowned by this bush is to hold up the emu and state that she has the earth wife's favor. And this, this is so cool. The bush reaches out and takes the emu from her hand and passes the emu between all of the different heads in the bush and then hands it back to her covered with her own blood because yeah. it took the blood off of the thorns that it punctured her with and fed the emu for her. And that whole scene is like this completely wild and bizarre experience that kind of changes the context of the earthquake and the mouse. Because what if the earthquake could pay attention to the mouse? And that's kind of yeah. what it feels like here. There, yeah, I'm done. it's really, really cool. I'm done. I'm done. <laughs> yeah, so she, she like kind of shakes and shivers her way back to the circle of stones and shakes Mark and Joran awake like bodily, which is generally how you have to wake someone who's in Dwar. And Mark is like pretty calm, pretty chill. He's like, oh, it's later than it should be. We'll have to eat on the move. And then they both stop and like look around and they're like, we don't know which way we came from. <laughs> we don't know which way we're going. We can't even see the sun because the mist is so heavy. Good, we're lost. <laughs> and this is where they start seeing this little figure in the gray hood again. And it's it just appears at the edge of their vision and it pops in and out. And they are just kind of like, well, it's beckoning to us. It seems to know where it's going because it's kept pace with us this whole time. Mm -hmm. So I guess we follow the little thing in the gray hood. Yep. Seems like a great idea. Yeah. <sighs> and as they follow the hooded figure they managed to find joran and by proxy james stumble across like an odd scent trail mm -hmm. and they managed to find a rage of rathorns and as they make their way through to find the rage first of all there's this beautiful description of the rathorn stallion oh my god and they find the rest of bordas's men <laughs> One man first, because there's one man yep. who was killed. Who's just been ripped open by one of the mares of the rage. And I believe there's several other men unconscious. The men who were asleep and couldn't be woken. And four skeletons that have been spat out from a hole on the hill that the men stripped to sleep on. Because, you know, yes, that's what happens when you fuck up in the anarchies. I, I remember over the past weekend, I sent you this note and I asked if it would be possible for us to read 
Just the description of the rage. I, I'll read the description of the rage if you'd like me to, or you can. I would really, really love for us to have this read on this podcast, because there's something about it that seems to strike the perfect beat and will give us really excellent, I don't know, energy, swoopiness, whatever, for the rest of the I podcast. I think you just want to read the thing. Yes! But I prefer Not your voice. Not to call you out here, but... Well, I... Anyway, go ahead. I'm just going to do the one paragraph. Okay. Cool. Alrighty then. James' first impression was of a black stallion wearing elaborate ivory armor, and then of some fantastic cross between a horse and a dragon. The creature was tall and finely made, with slender legs and a broad chest tapering back to powerful hindquarters. His arched, almost serpentine neck supported a small head encased in an ivory mask, out of which grew the nasal tusk and curved horn of a rathorn stallion. Ivory plates curved around his neck, chest, and abdomen. More ivory sheathed his forelegs like a pair of greaves. His white mane and tail hung against his ebony coat like falls of heavy silk. He stood absolutely motionless, staring at her. She stared back, only dimly aware that the four mares of his rage were behind him, with their heads up, also watching her. A man lay in the grass at one of the mares' feet. His belly had been ripped open. In all that glade, the only movement was of his blood slowly spiraling down the mare's tusk. So in this scene, there's Jame, Mark, and Joran, the rage of Rathorns, and the body of the man, and that's it. And from this place, Jame has this visceral, physiological connection with the Rathorn, and she feels this hunger for meat. And the sense that she has is that she's picking up a psychic connection from the Rathorns themselves. And the th what breaks this tableau is this incredible moaning cry that seems to come up from the ground and actually frightens the Rathorn rage away. And from that point, Mark and James are like, gosh, what could frighten a Rathorn? I don't know, let's follow the Rathorn. Because the Rathorn take off into the mist, and in the midst of the mist where the Rathorns ran off is all of this screaming and yelling and death and destruction. So Mark decides that he's going to charge in and save whoever's, whoever's God, been threatened. Yeah. <laughs> and so, so James pulls him back and stops him. Once the terrible cry that frightened the Rathorns is not repeated, then they actually begin to explore and they find the different bodies and then discover that the rage of Rathorns had trampled a bunch of Bordis's Black Band brigands and just trampled yeah. them into the dust. This is where the rest of the Black Band is. Yes. And I actually have this noted as the rest because I have notes through this whole chapter of <laughs> where everyone dies. And so they've, like, they were, again, just kind of in the wrong place at the wrong time. Mm-hmm. They're just in the way. Yeah. And the Rathorns really feel like a force of nature in like the truest, most kind of heartless sense. <laughs> they they don't really give two shits about humans except as food. Yeah. <laughs> you know, hunting a Rathorn is such a fool's errand that they're not even afraid of people. Like mm -hmm. and I just I think it's I think it's a very cool passage. I think it's a cool way to introduce Rathorns. And it's a dozen men who've been killed by the Rathorns. Oh. So, 
Which James yeah. writes off very, as Mark describes it, callously. He was yeah. casually. And, and that's... So much for that, Yeah, all she says. That, again, is this interesting beat where Mark experienced some discomfort about James. Yeah. Yeah, that's like, that's a lot right there. That the Rathorn would be, would be frightened off by a sound. What was it? Four or six skeletons excreted from a hill? Four skeletons out of the hill. Yep. Yep. Six sleeping dudes who were just sleeping there, and then 12 more who were all trampled. Yep. We're to the point of the buildings now. Do you want to jump into the buildings, or do you want to uh, aim something aim someplace else. No, I'm I'm happy to talk about the buildings because I think that the city is really cool and mm-hmm. I really like the way it's described. As ever, I'm not going to go into a huge amount of detail because if I did, I would be here all day, but <laughs> this is a really beautiful introduction of this city in the Anarchies, which is made all out of white stone with these like beautiful catwalks and everything is everything is very short, mm-hmm. like it's very small to the extent that second story catwalks are low enough that even James has to duck underneath them and James is James is not above average height even for like non-kensier and mark is uh pushing seven feet is he not <laughs> yeah. over seven feet i think he's over seven feet yeah and i think joran was the only one who didn't have to crouch yeah and so they're they've managed to blunder into this sort of a ghost town, really. And I think it's really interesting the way it's described because it's not that it's, like, on the one hand, it's that this town is totally empty. Mm-hmm. Like, there's no one here. And that's part of the reason it's so eerie. But more than that, like, everything is still in place. Yeah. Everything is untouched. And it very much has, like, this feel of pictures of Chernobyl or of Pompeii where it's like people's meals are still out on the table and like it feels like someone could step out of a door at any moment. And it's the, what's the line? The sense of arrested life. Yeah. And James, like, I feel like it's been a long time since anyone was here, but on the other hand, I feel like people were here and totally fine right up until the second they weren't. Yeah. And everything halted. Yeah. And it's this beautiful white stone city full of emus and Rathorn masks. And they figure out fairly quickly that this must be the reason the anarchies were sealed off. Mm -hmm. This must be the city of the people who sealed the anarchies. And they realize that one of the only things they see that isn't the, like, stone full of these tiny hairline cracks is this gray cloak about the height of, like, a child, like, waist height on James. Yeah. And when James touches it, it crumbles to dust. Oh, man. And there's this sense of her walking through M.C. Escher, or I kept thinking of Labyrinth at the last scene. Yeah, the Escher vault. The Escher vault, yeah. It's very Escher-room. Yeah. I do want to mention the most Jame line I've ever seen in my life, <laughs> which is Jame wrestled briefly with temptation and lost. <laughs> this is upon her seeing a hallway that stretches much, much farther than it looks like the house should be able to contain. And she's just like, Mark, I'm going to go exploring. And Mark is like, I'm staying out here because I am too big to fit. <laughs> <laughs> a bee careful yeah and so she scuttles off into this like this distorted maze where like it looks like it's 
a hundred yards to the end of this hallway, but every step she takes carries her 50 feet down. And she finds a room where the threshold is at a 45 degree angle and there's like, the entire room is set up on what looks like one wall, but when she steps across the threshold, it's the floor. Yeah. It's like, it's very Alice in Wonderland and it's it's really cool and strange and I love it a lot. Yeah. And I also want to mention, this is where she acquires some mystery crystals, <laughs> which will show up later. <laughs> Because she just finds a bottle of liquid because this room at a 90 degree angle looks like it was used for a party. Mm -hmm. And so it's full of like bottles of liquid and cups and that sort of thing. And the sealed bottles are still full of actual liquid. But when she touches the glass of one, the liquid instantly turns into crystals. And because she's James, she puts the crystals in a pocket, in a waterproof pocket so that she can try them out on someone when she decides she dislikes them enough to feed them some mystery crystals. And I do love her very much. I love her too. So in addition to this sense of exploration, there's also this deepening mystery that is somehow tied into her own knowledge of the mythology of her people. Because yeah. she reaches... Oh, yeah. Can I talk about this room? Yes, the... yes. Please talk about this the room. The vine room? Yes. So Jane manages to find this room and it's the last room in the corridor and it's got three locks on it like lock bars but it's open like it's cracked mm -hmm. and when she goes inside it's this it's built of a strange material that looks kind of familiar to her and is made of this dark black rock shot through with like glowing green and the moss on the floor glows and there's this large oval window in the far side of the wall sealed with like crystal and bars and it's this strange sky with a strange dark valley full of glowing vegetation and a white city that's just absolutely destroyed just yeah. melted almost to ruins full of vines completely taken over by the forest and jame realizes pretty quickly that this room must be made of step back stones and by crossing them it must step you back all the way to a world that was important to the people who built this place, which must be the builder's home. Mm -hmm. And this is where Jame realizes that this city must be the home of the builders, this theorized fourth race that built everything that the Kenserath find on every threshold world. Mm -hmm. And there's the really, like, the thing that always really struck me about this room is that She's standing there and she's trying to figure out what happened to them. She's like, well, we we need the builders. Yeah. Like, if we go to the next threshold world, we don't know how to build our temples. They're always just there when we show up. We can't make them ourselves. Yeah. And she's like, well, okay, maybe the builders are still getting on with the way they do things. Like, we don't, there's no one here. Mm -hmm. We haven't found bodies or burials or tombs. There's no one here. But as she turns around, she realizes that behind the door of this room is a pile of bones that are a skeleton that would like barely reach her waist. They have a strange shape to the eye sockets and the skull and the fingers are like even twice the length of James, mm -hmm. whose fingers are unnaturally long for a Kensier. And the reason that I'm like, 
really like the reason that I've always been really kind of taken by this this image is she looks closer and she realizes that the bones are full of the same hairline fissures that have cracked all of the stone walls except for the diamantine used to light the whole city. Yeah. And Jame realizes that when whatever happened happened, this member of the builders must have crawled all the way to this room and unlocked it to die inside. Wow. And I personally have always been really like kind of taken by that because it it speaks a lot to how much the builders, even more than the Kenserath, who are kind of a perforce eternal diaspora. Yeah. The builders know where their home is and can see it and can never go back because it's so deep in Perimal Darkling. And so that means that they like, they miss it much more profoundly. And so this one builder who happened to be close enough to this room to die inside of their home decided to do that. Wow. And I just, I've always been really genuinely moved by that image. That is, wow. Yes. Anyway, that's what I have to contribute about the the room full of stepback stones. Man. I like I said, I've always been really genuinely emotional about this. <laughs> yeah, I love that. I really really love that. Do you imagine that that thought process went through James' mind? I think that James has bigger fish to fry. Really? Yeah. A, I think James has bigger fish to fry and B, James is so trained like so fundamentally trained to be homesick for people Mm. i don't know if it would necessarily occur to her that this builder chose to die here because he was homesick for a place interesting interesting because like to jame home has always been tori it's always been the kenserath it's always been mark it's always been a person yeah you know She's lived places, Mm -hmm. but I don't know that she would necessarily consider any of them home except in the most technical sense. Mm -hmm. So I don't know that this would occur to her just because it's not, it wouldn't be a natural thought for her to have. Yeah, yeah. But it occurs to me, and I'm emotional about it. Admittedly, it only occurred to me after reading this book about four times, but... I really, really love that. I love that a lot. And that really, oh, my hat is off. That's really amazing. And so James like touches the skeleton of this builder and it just falls apart. Like the the hairline cracks in everything have just so affected the structural integrity of absolutely everything in this place that touching the builder makes his whole body crumble. Her reaction is so heartbreaking. Yeah. It, it's it's even sadder because she does not seem particularly like distraught about it yeah like she's so used to this phenomenon and that is sad yeah you know she's rueful that she's done it again destroying where she only meant to investigate yeah and the only thing that doesn't crumble to pieces is the builder's third phalange like the very tip of a finger which is twice as long as james and again James has what even the Kensir consider kind of like unnaturally long <laughs> fingers. I I would assume that she has like the same sort of look as a person with arachnidactyly. Yeah. That's a great word, by the way. That is a great uh, word. But so I do think this speaks much more to James' concept mm-hmm. of home because she wraps this finger in a handkerchief and puts it in her pocket, planning to bring it to a pyre and burn it honorably as a member of the Kenserath. Yeah. And that's, I think, 
that's the kind of home James thinks about. Yeah. Is like, home is the people who will burn your bones. Interesting. It's not a place. So it would never occur to her to like really connect and resonate with that decision on the part of the builder. Because to her, if you're with your people, then you're probably home enough to be going on with. Wow. That's such a fantastic perspective on the sense of home, especially in resonance with James' experience with Mark and that experience of home. Damn, that's... Yeah. Wow. Holy cow. I imagine Mark has definitely thought of this. Yeah, of this home yeah i imagine that if mark had seen this skeleton he would immediately have thought of like oh well of course this individual chose to die here where they could see their long lost home world because he's been carrying his home earth around for 60 years in a bag around his neck exactly wow anyway i just really needed to like get that off my chest we can get on with our chat now man well there's A lot of stuff that happens very quickly, and very little of it is good. As ever. Because she she makes it out of the city, and she thinks, I've got to find Mark because he probably thinks that I have actually fallen into a hole. And the mist at this point is so thick that she can't even see in front of her. And she has to find her way down the hall by pressing her hand against the wall. And then the wall disappears, and she finds herself in the mist completely blind. And who does she happen to stumble across but, of course, Bordis. Yeah, and the other thing is Mark is gone. He's not where she left him. Yeah. And the reason that she ends up going where she's going is because she thinks she hears him calling for her. Mm -hmm. And as she gets closer to the voice, she realizes that it's actually Bordis doing an impression of Mark. Yeah. And... The one thing I did want to say about Bordas is that the first thing he says to her in this conversation is brave talisman, pretty eyes. And I understand why this man is a little bit obsessed with eyes, especially when it comes to Jame. But also, like, this whole conversation suggests that he is legitimately fixated on James' (laughs) eyes specifically. Yes, yes. Which is... There's a lot to be disturbed about with Bordas, and this is one of many, but that is disturbing. Yeah, that is. And she is pretty disturbed. She's blind. Yep. She can't see in the, in the mist. All she, If the Grindark tracker is downwind, she's screwed. And so yeah. she's just basically prey waiting. And it's at this point that she hears this cry again. And it causes footsteps to go running away, and Jame is completely overwhelmed by the sound of retreat or attack or whatever. But even more than that, she's overwhelmed by the sound of this cry that seems to come up from out of the ground. Yeah, and it's this swell of grief Mm -hmm. that just seems to strike misery and like raw panic into Mm -hmm. absolutely everyone who hears it yeah so she turns to the emu that she has it saved her with the bush and the stream so you know might as well give it a try so she asks the emu to help her to help us to help her and joran and the emu is like I don't want to. Until Jane remembers that the emu has to be fed. I kind of fixated on this for a little bit. She just held the emu's mouth against the side of her hand, her gloved hand, and it took a bite out of her hand right through the glove. Yeah, it takes like a big chunk out of her. (laughs) And, And then had blood all over its lips and was like, 
Okay, I'm ready to go now. <laughs> the emu craves blood, and I kind of love it. <laughs> but what's cool is that it sends out this beam of clarity in front of it. It it whooshes the mist away right in front of it. Like a flashlight. Yeah, yeah. In the dark. Yeah, like a Except flashlight. in mist. Except in mist. And led her into this boneyard, into this skeleton yard of all yeah. of the dead Rathorn, not just skeletons, but also ivory armor. And this line, I love the haunting quality of this line. She finds herself standing in this fortune of ivory, this wilderness of death. I also underlined that line, yeah. Because this is where Rathorn come to die, like Mark already told us that, and this is the proof positive of that fact, but like, this is the first time Jame really comes to terms with like, if I could carry just one of these skeletons out of here, I would be rich for the rest of my days. Mm -hmm. Yeah. But the reason that the Rathorn come here to die is because the ivory armor on the Rathorn continues to grow. Indefinitely. Indefinitely. Yeah. And so- it's a little bit like antlers on deer and elk. It's more like lobsters. Well, well, but they never shed. Unlike any well, of those other animals, they never shed. And so yeah. the horn will continue to grow and arch around the head of the Rathorn until it pierces the back of the skull and kills the Rathorn. Or yeah. the armor plating of the face mask will grow closed, suffocating the Rathorn. And so they actually come here to die. Yeah, like they come here to basically rip themselves apart mm -hmm. piece by piece with the intent to die. Yeah. And on the other side of this graveyard of Rathorn skeletons, she finds a circle of diamantine emus. And there's one that has, like, a deep, dark mouth that seems to be, like, a passage. Mm -hmm. And one that has, like, a leather call on it. Mm -hmm. And, of course, like, Bordas and his tracker are in the one with the open mouth. Mm -hmm. And the leather call is, of course, the changer. Yes. Who is actively dying <laughs> under the energy of the anarchies. Yeah. Like, the anarchies are actually poison to him. Yeah. Just, yeah. Which, in, just in and of itself, I just want to take a beat. And first of all, it takes an unbelievable amount of will for him to still be alive. And second of all, the force of the anarchies, I don't want you here. I will crush you with my air. Yep. <laughs> it's just really amazing. And Bordas has gone so far off the deep end at this point. He's, he's really, he's really not all there anymore. Like, not that he ever really was. He was, uh, he was always pretty rocky mm -hmm. on a lot of stuff, including like basic human compassion. Mm -hmm. But he's, he's really not all there anymore. Yeah. And Jame just, she's over it. She's done. Yep. She's furious. She's worried about Mark. Like, she's sick of Bordas and his weird obsession with the belief that every man she's ever spoken to is her suitor. Yeah, yeah. And Bordas's grindark tracker just, like, starts to melt down in fear <laughs> as Jame hits this, like, berserker rage at full speed. Because he can see what's happening, and he does not want to have anything to do with it. Yeah. And I do like Jame's tactic for this fight, which is 
she jumps at Bordas and instead of attacking Bordas, she breaks his thumb and forces him to let go of the Grindark. Yeah, I love that to free the Grindark. I love yeah, that which, so much. Which on the one hand is like a really good tactical move because it means that Bordas is literally blind again. Mm -hmm. Because since he's the worst, he was using this man as a seeing eye man. Mm -hmm. So he's at a disadvantage. It's a good tactical move. But it's also very Jame to go into this fight and immediately free the person she thinks has been most sorely misused. Yeah, I really love that. So, so the tracker's gone. And Jame wants to find out what happened to Mark and, of course, asks the only, ins like, bananas person nearby and discovers that Bordas was imitating Jame to call Mark and then, again, tried to kill him with a wall because it worked so well in Titastagon. So Jame is worried about Mark. That's right. This is like the third time someone's pushed a wall over <laughs> on know, Mark, huh? It's like, oh, he's a tower of a man. Push a wall on him. And it never works. So I, I, love, I love this brief little interchange when Jame realizes that Joran probably had an idea of where Mark was because earlier he'd dashed off and she'd called him back and she was like, damn, I shouldn't have called him back. So she just says to the ounce, find him, bring him here if you can. And I love Joran so much. He's such a good kitty. He gives her a wide moon opal stare and is gone. Off he goes. He's gonna go, he's gonna go find his boy. He's gonna go find his friend. Yeah, I, I really like, Joran is still an animal. He, like, you know, for all that Jame is a magical cat girl, like, she's not that much of a magical cat girl. He's still an animal. Mm -hmm. But this really showcases, like, how much their bond has developed yeah. since Jame realized it existed. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, Bordas is kind of going, going nuclear in front of her. And then we find the changer and the changer is pretty creepy and also kind of pitiful. Yeah. I was kind of disgusted with myself that I actually felt bad for him. Yeah. I mean, like, he, like I said, he's being basically melted. By the anarchies. Mm -hmm. I do like the opening line he goes with, which is, Jame is circling Bordas, who's kneeling on the ground and threatening him and, like, embracing this berserker flare. And the changer crawls forward on top of the emu he's on and says, Ah, child, how you love your work. What a reaper of souls you will make oh someday. And it snaps her out of it. Which I think is interesting because we've... We've heard a lot from Jame about her feeling that there's some kind of point of no return that she's kind of playing, like, jump rope with yeah. right now. And we also know that this changer is hoping to kill her, not because vengeance, but to prevent whatever Kiral was hoping to achieve with bringing her back to the master. Yeah. So, like, I think it's interesting because this is him taunting her with, like, you know, how you love your work. Mm -hmm. But it's also very literally a last-ditch gambit on the part of this changer to keep her from going over that edge. Yeah. <laughs> he wants her dead, but he's also willing to save her soul in the process. Yeah, which is really fascinating and adds this whole different bent to changers, which it would be easy to say the changers are categorically bad. Yeah, and I mean, like, I'm not going to say that I don't think there are any nice changers. <laughs> there are some not terrible changers, but even, you know certain people who shall yet remain nameless are, are um, 
They're not good people, let's say. Yep. But this is the first time that we see not just um some disconnect mm-hmm. in like what various changers are after on kind of a uh, esoteric level, mm-hmm. but also like. This really is a changer who is gambling on James' desire not to be a monster. Yeah, yeah, which is interesting. And he, it's fascinating. He taunts her with information that he knows that she wants to know and decides that it will be more amusing to not let her know what it is. And Bordas tries to be tries to be a really continue to be really bad. And Jame is rescued by the moaning cry of paralyzing grief that had been present throughout the past few yeah. hours. And this is a rough, this is, I think, one of the rougher scenes in certainly this book, for sure. It's just, it's it's a very sincere kind of grief. It is. Like, Jame has grieved people. Tori has grieved people, especially Jame. Mm-hmm. And this, but Tori doesn't really let himself feel that grief. We've talked before about how Tori's defining characteristic really is kind of that he kind of bottles his shit up, which yeah. is not great for him. Mm-hmm. And Jame, whenever she's struck by grief over someone, is usually also in a rush to not die. Yeah. But like, this is the first time that someone shows up and is really grief stricken and is really just feeling it. Yeah. Like, every inch of that grief is being so profoundly felt in this chapter, and it's brutal. It is. It is. It is. Because the cry is so, like, profound that it seems to kind of jar something loose in Bordas's mind, mm-hmm. and he just, like, bolts off into the mist, sobbing like a kid. Yeah. And Jame finally sees the thing that has been screaming... And at first she thinks that they're two human figures, like an old woman who's like bent double with age and sobbing and like a young white haired child with bright red eyes. And then she realizes that they're actually a pair of Rathorns. Mm -hmm. And the mare is so old that her coat has faded from black to silver Mm -hmm. and her ivory has overgrown so far that it's completely encased her chest her mask is closed over one eye the nasal pits have grown shut the mask is so heavy it bends her head Mm -hmm. almost to the ground Mm -hmm. she's being buried alive in her own armor yeah and this is how we discover how some rathorns are fortunate enough to have their armor literally kill them in the sense of like the stallions will have their horn grow back Mm -hmm. and split their skull from behind Mm -hmm. others are not because this mare is killing herself the only way she can think of which is by destroying her memories and her like mental integrity one piece at a time Mm -hmm. because it's the only way she knows to die yeah and it's it's brutal. Yeah. It's a beautiful, beautiful passage of grief and loss and mourning. And it's also just absolutely brutal. Yeah. There is uh, such an such a deep and visceral sense of dignity in the face of this terrible, terrible loss. Yeah. And I love 
this brief section that just describing the three experiences of despair that so long a life had left so many memories to be destroyed, rage that her own traitor body had made such a destruction necessary, and grief that bit by bit she was losing all the bright, fierce days, all the glowing nights. And yeah, the passion of this life that was lived so fully and so richly yeah that held so much joy and so much passion and so much power and to have all of that that wants to stay alive and yet to have that will to recognize that i will choose how this ends. Yeah, because she could just wait until her armor is so heavy it kills her. Exactly. But she doesn't want to. I've cried over this passage before. I'm prepared to admit that. Yes. I have definitely cried over this yes, passage as, in the past. As have I. As have I. And the the reason why she is making this choice is because of the cult beside her. She wanted to save him, and I'm I'm upset about it. <laughs> <laughs> sorry carry on I'm sorry do you do you want to do do you want to do you want to talk about it a little bit no i no you're good no i just like i'm like i said i am genuinely like i have always been genuinely moved by the way that this chapter handles the death of all of these creatures yes like the builders the rathorn even the changer mm -hmm. and i just her intent was so good mm -hmm. with this but because she couldn't make the cult leave her, yeah. instead of dying and sparing him from being marked by her death, she's like left this indelible stain yeah. on him yeah. because he's so like maddened with grief by the way she's tearing herself apart. Yeah, and that he'll he'll never be part of a herd of of a rage. He'll never be part of a group. He's going to grow up completely alone without her. Yeah. And it's just really brutal. It is. What was really interesting is to have read this as a mom who Oh god, yeah. And and to know in that sense that she placed her bet. She she was counting on the, the possibility of ending her own existence before she truly bonded with the cult. That was the yeah. goal. You know that that was the goal. And she wasn't able to because of those, those bright, fierce days and those glowing nights. And she had such an incredible life that she lived that she wasn't able to unmake herself before the bond was made. Yeah. And that, that grief that she felt that her coming end had marked him even before his birth. And so yeah. this has this essence that is so perfect for everything within these stories of the grief that comes with this sense of creation and that despair all wrapped in with the dignity of I am going to live my life on my feet fighting this battle even though this might kill me, but I'm going to do it with honor. And I, I love this 
I, I just love this scene. Yeah, and speaking of which, I wanted to talk about the line. Um, I have a line marked out here that actually as something that's very Torison mm-hmm. and like really speaks to Torison as the person we came to know over the last couple of chapters, and especially the previous chapter with his argument of we cannot abandon the Southern host. Yes. We can't leave them. Yes. Because the line is... Stupid as it probably was, she could no more turn her back on this mare than on one of her own people pleading for the white knife. She drew her own blade. Yeah. And, like, she walks up to the Rathorn, and the two of them, like, look at each other, and she hears the Rathorn's voice in her mind, and the Rathorn makes the most, like, cold-blooded, highborn statement I've ever heard. Like, the most Kensier statement. Which is, if you kill me, my child will kill you. Kill me. Yeah. The mayor is so determined to be like, no, no, listen, here's the deal. If you kill me, you will start a blood feud that you will never be free of. Please end this. Yes. And it's such a, it's such a moment of like, Jane really is being a highborn in this moment. Yes. Like she... Like, this is considered the truest core duty of a highborn is to offer the white knife. Yeah. And, like, I, I, it's really great. It really, really is. It's really good. And it doesn't stop. That's just it. Because yeah. Jane prepares to strike her and the cult attacks her. Yeah. The cult is, the cult is really not on board with this. Like, he's, he's still really young, really, really young. Yeah. And he's just, he can't handle it. Yeah. Like, he can't bear the idea of his mother's death. Yeah. And he nearly kills her. And he nearly kills James. Yeah. And James spins and hits him with a kick right behind the ear in this undeveloped portion of the plate and knocks him out. James knows that this cult should not grow to maturity because yeah, the grief is simply too great a, a weight for him to bear. And so... Yeah, and she knows that if he grows up, he will do everything he ever can to end her life. Yep, and it won't matter who's in his way. Or what's in his yeah. There He's described as a rogue and a death's head. <laughs> yeah. So she's like, well, I guess I got to do what I got to do. And the mare is right behind her, hisses behind her ear. And with that huge, ponderous, ivory weight of a head has lifted it and is positioning it right above James, ready to crush James' head. Yeah, because the mare is, the mare is too encased in her own ivory to fight normally like she can't the colt goes after jane with like the half-grown horns on his skull mask Mm -hmm. and they have like not talons on their feet but they have basically like a dew claw that grows out of the armor on their front legs yeah and like she's just all of her armor is too overgrown to do that she only has one weapon left and it's the sheer crushing weight of her own ivory yeah and she threatens to crush james skull if james tries to hurt the colt yeah and james agrees not to hurt him and then says do you still want help oh my god and the mare lowers her head like very slowly until her chin is resting on james shoulder and James stands there and, like, runs her fingers along the mare's mask and down the lines of the ivory. There are they're t- they're two sentences that need to be read out loud. 
They must be I read love, out loud. Do you want to read them? I do. Can I please? Yeah, please do. Oh. They're, they're, I, I love these sentences. Yes. All this beauty and strength, all this proud spirit about to vanish forever, but everything eventually comes to an end, and destruction is only one more face of God. Oh, I get chills every single time I read that. I do too. It's I just, so beautiful. It's so fantastic. And the honor and grace and dignity that is all within the, and inherent within this particular tableau is one of my favorite pieces ever. I would do anything for a art of this. Oh my god, yes! Oh! I should learn to draw and do it myself. <laughs> I don't have the patience for it, though. The one thing I did also want to say is I think this is kind of an important moment for Jame. Oh, yes. Because Jame has really considered... She's aware of the fact that she's she's already been labeled by the god voice as Tyr Raiden. Mm -hmm. And she knows that the Tyr Raiden are one each of creation, preservation, and destruction, it doesn't take a rocket scientist to deduce that Jame is the face of destruction. Yep. And I think part of the reason she's had so much trouble through this whole book is that she feels like it's inevitable that she go over that cliff's edge we were talking about. So I think part of the reason she's been sort of sliding down, like, one side of the knife's edge that Imali talked about mm -hmm is that she feels like she's going to end there anyway. Mm -hmm. And I feel like this scene with the Rathorn is the first time Jame really comes to, like, this sudden realization of, no, but destruction is another face of God. Yes. And, like, I might be a destructive Shanir, but I can offer this mare, like, peace yeah. and finality and an end to this long, horrible suicide. Yeah. And, like, it's... It's really a beautiful moment between Jame and the mare of Jame standing there with her knife in hand and the mare's head on her shoulder and like the mare kind of having this moment of peace mm -hmm. and Jame having this moment of clarity mm -hmm. about like the fact that destruction doesn't necessarily mean this wanton malicious yeah. killing that so many people have tried to push her into. Yeah. And it's just a lovely moment. Oh, it is. And there's this this beautiful line that the mare's soul seemed to be tearing its way to freedom. After she stabs yeah. the mare. Yeah. Because Jame, who has, for all that it's been a long time, Jame was raised as a highborn, mm -hmm. which means she knows the most effective way to kill someone asking to be killed yes so she drives her knife through the mare's remaining eye mm -hmm. um and the mare screams and the description is that her soul seems to be tearing its way to freedom mm -hmm. and it's really like the death scene of the mare is brutal and awful and raw and it's a, it's such a contrast to this moment of peace and mm -hmm. honor and connection yeah. before the mayor's death yeah and yet at the same point it is it is the perfect counterpoint to that peace and connection yeah and it's that space in between the peace and connection and that destruction that really is where jame is trying to find herself and is really having a hard time settling in yeah and to put on my nerdiest hat oh please Oh, please put on your nerdiest hat. You know what this 
description of the changer screaming as like <laughs> blood and brain matter leak out of his ears <laughs> under the weight of the Rathorn cry has always really reminded me of. What? What has it really reminded you of? You know the book of the Animorphs with the Howlers? Yes, I do. Very, very that much. That one. <laughs> that one. That's a that's a rough book, but it's so good. And it's yeah. it's very similar to this in that the Howlers affect like the more sentient you are, the worse the Howlers affect you. Mm-hmm. Except with this, it's the more darkling you are, yeah. the more the Rathorn affects you. Yep. Because what happens as the mare screams and screams is that the diamantine emus reflect back the noise Mm -hmm. and, like, build this massive resonance. And Jame is, like, too paralyzed to move. Not in the sense of shocked, but in the sense of she tries to take a step and just collapses in a heap. But the changer is, like, ripping himself apart under the weight of this noise. And then... Jame is like grabbed by someone running and like all but chucked into the dark mouth of the open mouthed emu. Yeah. There's a little shadow. Yeah. As she's lying there in this like jiggly little heap, uh, she sees this little shadow darting back and forth across the stones in between the diamantine. And she reflects, oh, okay, no cloak because the the, the cape disintegrated, but the soul is still there. And she kind of watches the yeah. soul run back and forth, like, you know, playing handball or something. And then something sc- scoops her up and, like, st- tosses her just like tucks a her under, Just tucks her under his, like, this is Mark, of course. Yeah, of course, this just is Mark. Just tucks her under his arm like a football and, like... <laughs> Just <laughs> runs for the end zone. Just, like, that's the sum total of my football knowledge. I'm actually not convinced that the end zone is a thing. Yep. But. Yep. <laughs> but it's, you said it with confidence, and that's all that matters. <laughs> exactly. But so they wind up, like, inside the mouth of this emu, and the diamantine is still, like, booming and echoing, and they fall down a flight of stairs. Mm-hmm. Of course and they do. And then there's silence, like, they're below the level of the scream. Yep. She finds Joran! And Jane realizes that what she thought was the rocks, or, like, the sky falling down on her is actually just... Joran taking after Boo, his mentor in the ways of being a cat, lying on top of her chest <laughs> because and he's, trying to suffocate he's her. He's so happy to see her. He's proving it by covering up, by, by squishing her chest and covering up her head. And yep. she's, she throws her arms around him and he bursts into this thunderous purr. And, and in the midst of that reunion, they hear the cry of the Rathorn and the resonance of the Rathorn diminish and it's replaced by this high-pitched shriek and Jane remembers the colt and fortunately at the bottom of the stairs there are doors that have been are they iron doors that have been folded back and Jame grabs them and with all the force of desperation manages to close them in the colt's face and oh they're ironwood they're ironwood doors and so the, yeah. the colt can't get through it but Jame hears him throwing himself against the doors and hears him very very clearly if not today then tomorrow 
or next week or next year. Wait. And she knows, okay, I've just started a blood feud with a Rathorn who could kill and eat me. But let's just take one crisis at a time, shall we? She has this very nice moment of clarity where she's like, that Colt will do everything in his power forever to kill me. (laughs) I do love that she had been, that she kind of was like, I can't believe that just like two days ago, I was thinking, wouldn't it be cool to ride a Rathorn into battle? And now, oh well. (laughs) And now here we are. But so Mark and James are in this like underground chamber and James sees Mark and like throws herself into his arms and starts asking him questions about how he got out of Bordas's trap. And Mark is like, just a sec. And like starts picking like mud out of his ears that he used to stop the Rathorn scream. Mm -hmm. And it's mud made from the kithorn earth he's carried with him for 80 years (laughs) wow he must really like jame a lot yeah he used his home soil i just yeah and jame is like she's she's very appreciative of what a sacrifice that is yeah and really aware of what a sac and that's a moment of silence for mark's home soil there okay yeah So there's they're trying to figure out what to do and where to go. And they discover, you know, Mark tells James that the wall like poofed because it, it was falling apart anyway. And they happen to hear or James happens to hear a voice coming from one of the doorways because where they happen to be at the bottom of the stairs are there all oh of my these God. different doorways that go off into different kind of corridors. Oh, can I talk about this? Can I just can I can I just do the introduction for it and then you can talk about it? Is that yes, okay? Please okay. Do. okay. So so Jame hears this voice and she hears the voice say, Hello, is anyone there? And she's like instantly on her feet because she has not heard that voice for years except in her dreams. And that's the one voice that she has been looking for the most and most terrified of hearing. And so she she shouts, Tori, my God, where are you? Answer me and runs off. I love that Jame Jame is exactly the kind of beautiful idiot to thoughtlessly sprint into whatever extra dimensional doorway hoves into her field of vision. So of course, like she books it into the nearest doorway, sure that this is where she's heard Tori shouting from. And after a few yards, the glowing moss breaks up and then disappears, and then she's in complete darkness and the loud the louder she yells the more she only hears echoes and so she just stands there shouting tori's name and then tries to retrace her steps back and realizes that what's happened is that she ran across step back stones (laughs) so like she's gone quite a distance So the one thing I did want to mention, because we skipped past it, is that Bordas's trap, because of how, A, because of how cracked the walls were, being shoved through a wall and through a floor and then another wall as, like, the Escher vault mechanics of this city started to, like, kind of knock Mark around, didn't really hurt him that much, because they basically just powdered the second he hit him. And that is a very Bordas problem to run into, <laughs> of, like, a solid murder plot that is nonetheless completely ineffective. <laughs> that's really true. <laughs> but so, like, that's that's how Mark survived that. 
But I did just want to say, I'm not going to talk that much about this incident with hearing Tori's voice, but just keep it in mind for next chapter that Tori is heard shouting, hello, is anyone there? Yep. And then hears his his name being shouted after him. Yep. But so as James is coming back toward the chamber with its 10 doorways, that is relevant. There are 10 doorways in this mm-hmm. chamber. She falls down into a hole. Yep. As one does. And Mark, like, barely grabs her in time to fish her out. And it's a hole full of what are called trocks, which were brought to Rathilian by the builders. And they're basically, like, little animate stones whose digestive- they eat rock. Mm -hmm. So the builders use them to, like, hollow shit out and cut up stone and- That's so useful, but also I can really see where this became a problem (laughs) because the builders died um, and then the trucks went feral and after going feral, they started to eat a bunch of other shit. (laughs) Like, mm, this is softer than rock. (laughs) Yeah, you know, lichen, boots, feet. And Mark mentions that King Crothan had an infestation of them in the Kothafir dungeons once, mm-hmm. which cleaned out every prisoner he had, and <laughs> some guards as well. But the one thing I wanted to mention is that most areas around, the places that have issues with trocks are the areas around Kensir temples. Yes. And that suggests to me that they spread literally through these tunnels Mm -hmm. across these step-forward stones. Yep. Because we find out that each of those ten doorways leads to a Kensir temple, one of the nine on Rathilion, plus another doorway that leads to Weirden, the Grindark stronghold, which was also built by the builders. Mm -hmm. And so Jaime and Mark get well and truly lost in these passageways in the dark and they're just kind of like nervously trying not to get munched on too much and as they're like trying to light a torch to see where they're going because because mark also says that fire will like help you with trucks because trucks are afraid of fire yeah, they're very light sensitive. They're um like bordering on photophobic. You know, like anything else that lives in a cave. Yeah. I don't know. They're like fucking blind shrimp. Well, they're not. They have eyes. <laughs> but are, are you good? I'm good. I'm just I'm 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 having a fun over here. I'm having fun. Carry on. But so Jame is trying to light a torch to help deal with the trocks and see their way because they are thoroughly lost they have no idea where they're going and she has her flint like snatched out of her hand and then she feels this hand in hers and it's very like very cold very small with these long fingers Mm -hmm. and she realizes that it's it's the hand of their friend in gray the builder they followed here there's something that's so important to me about how this introduction happened because Mark says, uh, Trox, fire, fire good, Trox bad. So Jane pulls out her flint and steel out of her pocket. And as she does so, the handkerchief that held the finger 
fell out and she dropped the bone before she could catch it. She like tried to catch it and fumbled and it fell, but she didn't hear it hit the ground and thought one crisis at a time and I'll, I'll look for it when I strike the flint. But the flint and the steel were snatched out of her hand and she panicked, yeah. backed up, tripped over Joran and started to fall and the cold hand grabbed her and steadied her. Yeah. There's an intent of care that seems to be present in that introduction. And Jane even describes it to Mark as, I'm making someone's acquaintance, I think. Someone who doesn't want to be seen and isn't very tall. And Mark, being awesome, is like, oh, it's our friend in gray! Yay! Yeah, he's so calm about it. <laughs> I mean, he's calm about everything. Mark is a professionally calm person. But the the little hand, like, starts pulling on Jane and she realizes that he wants them to follow him again. Mm -hmm. And so they follow him through the dark, and there's this beautiful passage as they walk through this absolute pitch blackness about um, the dark of the moon uh, mm -hmm. title drop, title uh, drop. is why I wanted to talk about it. Yep. And this passage about the dark of the moon and how Jame as a child had always been terrified during the dark of the moon. Mm -hmm. Because it's like a known fact among the Kenserath that one of the first signs that Perimal Darkling has won and it's time for the Kenserath to run again is because the force of Perimal Darkling will reach up from the surface of the planet and consume the moon and then the sun and then the stars. Yeah. And the moon going out is the first sign that it's time to, you know, blow whatever popsicle stand they've been living on for the last couple of millennia. Mm -hmm. And in the Rathillion 40-day lunar cycle, there are five days where the moon is completely dark. God. Like, no light reflects off of it at all. And everyone on Rathillion, all the Kenserath on Rathillion, spend that entire time, like, nervously waiting for the moon to reappear because they're afraid that the world had ended and no one knew. Yeah. And, like, it's just, it's a beautiful passage. I love it very much. Yeah. It's a beautiful essence of who these people are. And we get a little glimpse as well into what does it mean if the builders are no longer? And what does it mean if, if there isn't another world that the cancer yeah. can go to? And they have, Mark and James have this little conversation about, well, what happens if it means that there are no more temples? And I love that James refers to the three-faced God as the old grump. Um, and, yeah. you know, well, I don't know what we do. I, yeah, I don't like the old grump any more than you do, but without him, and Mark is the one who says, or her, or it, and and it, it's just a really neat in conversation between two friends who really trust each other, and they're trying to, like, distract themselves from this terrifying darkness and the trucks that want to eat their feet as they're being led by this ghost body. Yeah, and also, I, I think the line is really lovely. So if the builders are dead, then this is it. Rathillion, the Kenserath's last battlefield. Yeah. And it's just, it's... It's really, it's really lovely. Yeah, it's really beautiful. And they're, they're finally chased out of the dark into, like, what they, seems to them like blinding light by yet another horde of trucks <laughs> Who are, who are, it's breeding season. And so <laughs> they barely get out with their lives. And in fact, the breeding trucks actually eat Mark's uh, backpack. Yep, they eat Mark's backpack and fill it with a bunch of larvae, which I do hate very yeah, much. That's really Thank awful. You. That's really awful. And they realize they're in this 
It's actually not, like, blindingly bright. It's just, or, oh, first, Jane looks around and realizes that their guide is gone. Mm. And she realizes she's still holding something. And when she opens her hand, it's the finger bone from the builder's house. And it crumbles into dust as she's looking at it. Oh, yeah, and it's it's really it's really nice. And she says um, goodbye. It's a it feels like a goodbye to a long-standing friend even though this is someone they kind of technically never met. <laughs> but yeah. This individual was long fucking dead by the time these chuckle fucks showed up. Yeah. Also there's this wonderful parallel to Willow. Yeah. Yeah, there is. There's that same kind of feeling of like Genuine affection for mm-hmm. someone who was dead long before you met them. Yeah. Which is, like, kind of a theme in these yeah, books. It's kind of a theme. Kind of a theme. So so they find themselves in this room. So they find themselves in this room, which is not as blinding as they first thought it was. It's, it's just that their eyes are so sensitive after so long in the dark. <laughs> and it's this nine-sided chamber with what Jame assumes is a tiny model of a temple of the three-faced god Mm -hmm. in it. And Mark says, that's not a model. I know where we are. We're in the temple room of Karkinaroth, which he says is 300 leagues south of the Anarchies. I want to be clear. I did the math. 300 leagues is over a thousand miles, Mm -hmm. which is roughly the distance from New York City to St. Louis. Yes. So more than a third of the way across the United States. Just saying. I will say New York City to St. Louis is just the, like, measurement that made the most sense to me, a person who used to live in the Mississippi River Valley and now lives in New York City. So, like, (laughs) sorry, but you have to live with the heavy bias of, like, where I used to live. (laughs) And they realize that the step forward stones in the tunnel have brought them a thousand miles south. Yeah. And first of all, just as a world building aside, Mark makes the comment that Weirden... In the Ossine Hills, the Grindark stronghold mm-hmm. is also built by the builders, is the 10th door in the chamber, and the reason that the builders built it is because the Grindark ancestors were the builders' craftsmen. Yeah. And uh, Jame is, like, looking, inspecting the temple, and she's like, it's so small. Like, the I knew the builders like to play with space, but this is ridiculous. Mm-hmm. And she reaches out to look at the door, which has been bolted shut. And when she puts her hands on it, she almost burns herself because there's so much power trapped inside. And she starts asking where the priests are, and Mark says, wait, stop, I can hear someone inside. Yeah. And they hear this voice from inside the temple screaming, let me out, oh god, let me out. Yeah. Over and over again. And Mark, in like one of his classic moments of like absolute direct, there's a problem, I'm going to do everything in my power to solve it yep. kind of thinking. He just like kind of sets Jame aside and grabs the bolt across the door and tries to bend the iron with his bare hands. Yes. <laughs> which, admittedly, we've seen him do before. That's not completely outside the realm of possibility. But when he lets go unsuccessfully, his hands are completely blistered by the power coming yeah. off the temple. Oh my god. And then everything breaks kind of bad. Because he says, this calls for a lever. Just as a whole bunch of guards run in, carrying these 
spears, these staves. Iron shafted spears. Iron shafted spears. An improvement over his own wood shafted axe. Yes, and he says, Oh, that'll do nicely, friend, and reaches and reaches to take the, the spear, and the guard bonks Mark on the head and knocks him out. Yep. And one guard tells another to kill Joran because they have no orders about him. And Jane barely manages to tell Joran to run before she sprints into the fight and almost immediately gets whacked over the head with an iron staff. Again. And gets knocked out. And gets knocked out. And her last thought is, but these people are supposed to be our allies. Yeah. Oh, poor Jane. Poor Jane. Honey. Oh, honey. Honey. This was so much fun. She's such she's such a not really a political thinker. She's really not. <laughs> but so I think that's everything. Do you want me to read this last sentence? I do. I really do. But these people are supposed to be our allies, she thought with amazement, and then thought nothing more at all. Ta-da, ta-da. Man, I love this chapter so much. I do too. It's it's the scene with the Rathorn is really beautiful and <sighs> is really like the builder's empty city has always really stuck with me. Yeah, me too. Anyway. Anyway. All right. You want to do that outro? I I can do my outro without permission because I'm grown folk. Yes, you are. Unlike some people I could mention. You're grown folk. <laughs> <laughs> this has been the podcast Bound in Pale Leather. Thank you so much for joining us. And thank you all very much for your patience with the delay on last week's episode. My computer crashed. I have a new laptop now, and that should improve the pure number of occasions where I'm like, this is going to be delayed because of technical difficulties. But last week was a struggle. Thank you very much for your patience. Please feel free to send us your thoughts about Dark of the Moon or about Godstock on Tumblr at the podcast Bound in Pale Leather over email at podcastboundinpaleleather at gmail.com or on Twitter at podcastbipl. And thank you so much to everyone who's already sent stuff in. We are doing great. We've added one whole person to our entourage this week. And as always, a special thank you to Seth Jones for our intro and outro music. And next week, we will be reading chapter eight of Dark of the Moon, Interlude with Jewel Jaws. Which is a really beautiful, atmospheric kind of chapter. I like it a lot. Yes, me too. And I think that's everything. That is. I'm Gabe. I'm Catherine. Thanks, everybody. Bye. Bye. Bye.